Father, I pray that as I teach this morning, Lord, that your word, this passage before us, would be clearly communicated. And even more importantly, that your Holy Spirit would also speak. Speak to each one of our hearts, Lord. Convict us of your truth and change us, Lord. It seems so crazy in this day and age that we believe that the preaching of the Bible has sufficient power to change lives. But God has always been that way. And we believe it with all of our hearts. Change us this day by your word, we pray. Amen. So, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And last time we, uh, we dealt with verses 3 through 8. And in dealing with that, uh, Paul was giving thanks because of the faith of the Colossians, the, the faith that they had, and the love that they had for one another. We saw specifically that they had placed their hope in what was to come, that they had been transformed by the word, and that the Holy Spirit had brought about this love in their heart. And because of their faith, because of their love, because of the hope that they have in what is to come, that is why Paul says, ever since we've heard this message, this report concerning you, we've not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, I entitled this morning's sermon, and I don't have the bulletin in front of me, so correct, forgive me if I'm slightly wrong, but walking in the light, in, in the light of Ephesians. In the light of Ephesians, did I put? Something along those lines. Because this passage is dripping with Ephesians. If you were with us for the study of Ephesians, you will recognize here chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 5. I'm sure there's bits of chapter 2 there as well. But there's specific references right throughout this. And so much of this is therefore, if you were here for those studies, going to be to a degree repetitive. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We have to have these truths drilled into us until they're second nature to us. And what becomes very clear right from the start of this passage is that when Paul hears that these guys have faith, that they have love, that they have hope, he doesn't say, brilliant, that's the Colossians all sorted then. I'll spend my time praying for somebody else. What he does then is he prays and he asks for something. He asks for something for them because of what they already have. And this is, the, again, a very useful prayer for us. And he asks that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, notice in what he's asking here, there are words of completion he, first of all, he asks that they might be filled. The concept of being filled with something is there being no space that is not contained. And he asks that they be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
So that again is a word of completion. It wants to know everything. And, and here's the deal, folks. We are all theologians, whether we like it or not. The question is not, are we theologians? The question is, do we have a good theology or a bad theology? Do we have little theology or much theology? The, the, the theology is just the study of God. And if we have faith and if we love one another, which I believe we do, and if we have hope in what is to come, then for us now, there should be a desire that we be filled with the knowledge of God, with spiritual wisdom, with spiritual insight. Some people think, well, if somebody's saved, and if they love people, well, that's it, it's job done. It's not job done, it's job just starting. We have to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the Lord, of his word. This, this Bible was not given to us by accident. It wasn't given to us on the off chance. We need this information. This is why we teach verse by verse through the scriptures, because what we're doing is we are trying through these sermons to answer Paul's prayer, that we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We want to know more of him. We want to know his will. We want to know his ways. We need to know. You see, there's two problems in the church. Ignorance and rebellion. If we're not living according to the will of God, is that because we don't know the will of God or we don't want to know the will of God? That's the bottom line. And if we do know his will and if we do want to obey him, then we're going to be walking in the will of God. And that's what Paul's praying for. He's praying that they would know what God's will is, that their spiritual wisdom would grow. And the reason that he's asking for that is clear in verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, in verse 9, we had a whole bunch of Ephesians 1 there. That's exactly what he prayed in Ephesians 1, that they'd be filled with um, wisdom. That He prayed that they may give... Uh, the, the God the Father may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And now in verse 10, we're very much in Ephesians 4, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what Ephesians 4 kicked us off with, that the way that we live is we live in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. That's right at the beginning of Ephesians 4. And he's saying the same thing here. He's praying that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, you've got to put verse 9 and 10 together, okay? If you want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, if you want to live as you should, then you need to know. You need knowledge, you need wisdom, you need understanding. There, is, there are huge portions of the modern church that seem to think that loving Jesus, really, really loving him, having all of these gooey feelings for him, is somehow sufficient for living a Christian life. Firstly, it's not, and secondly, that's not what loving him is. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if you're going to keep his commandments, you need to understand his commandments. You need spiritual wisdom to be able to walk the right way, to live the right way. 
That's why Bible teaching is so crucial. And that's why my work here is never done. That's why God's work in us is never done. We just keep on learning. We keep going deeper and finding out more and more about him. And boy, when we get to verse 15 next week, we're going to get to see a whole bunch more of him. That's why I asked Nico when I asked him to read this week, I put in verses 15 to 20 as well this week, to whet our appetites. It's one of the most glorious descriptions of Christ in the whole of Scripture. And uh, we need to know him better so that we can walk as we should. Well, what's this walk look like? Well, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this is what a good walk looks like. This is what a good Christian life looks like, okay? Here's our little checklist for us to tick off. Firstly, fully pleasing to the Lord. Your life is not for your pleasure. I think of all the lessons in the Christian life, this is the hardest to learn. Maybe I'm just speaking of myself. But we are constantly bombarded daily by advertisements to make our lives better, you know, fix ourselves up, make this more easy, do that in less time. And there is this constant message just all the time to us that life is about us being happy having pleasure it's not and we're going to see why when we get to verse 14 but in short though we'll expand on it in a moment our lives are for God's pleasure it is completely Countercultural, topsy turvy, upside down, back to front, makes no sense, but in the light of God's wisdom, it makes perfect sense. And we need to grasp this. Doing X might make our lives easier, it might make us happier. So it's the obvious thing to do, right? Particularly when option Y means that we're going to end up being less happy and having more struggles and life's going to be more difficult. But what if X brings shame to the name of the Lord and Y brings him glory? We've got to start thinking about life in these terms. And, and the problem is, is that we, we see life through our eyes and we're looking out always from our perspective. And from within us, there is this sin nature, this corruption of God's creation, where we instinctively think about ourselves. Look, if, if, if someone came along with a knife right now and chopped one of your arms off, I'd be horrified. I'd be deeply upset. I'd be... I just, I try and have as much empathy for you as I could. That how would you go through life after this trauma? You're going to have one less arm. How's that going to affect your life? And I'd want to, to, I'd want to feel for you all that I could. But my arm wouldn't hurt. And, and that's why it's so hard. That's why it's so hard. Because if you, if you chop my arm off, then I understand. Then I know about it. And so it's instinctive for us to have a life that is more comfortable, more pleasing, less difficult, 
more pleasurable. And as we do that, we are not living a life that is truly the Christian life. That's hard to hear. A Christian life is a life that says, I'm here for your pleasure. How may I serve you? It's, it's tough. It's tough, but it's true. And so, the first thing then about what a, what a Christian life looks like, what a, a, a worthy walk looks like, is that it's pleasing to him. Secondly, bearing fruit in every good work. So, this life is something that produces fruit in, in everything that we do. We're doing good works in all that we do, is impacted by our Christian lives. Our, our Christian lives don't just impact our Sunday mornings. Some of you are really godly and it impacts your Sunday evenings too. Some of you are super godly and it impacts your Wednesdays. But you know, that's not what it's about. Our Christian life should impact how we, we play how we work, how we interact, how we think. Everything in our lives, everything about every decision that we make. And this is something that Paul is planting the seed here, and this is something he's going to develop a lot more fully in chapter 2, and we'll deal with it a lot more when we get there. But, but there should be fruit and evidence of our Christian life in every area of our lives, not just the ones that are more visible, the ones that are more obviously Christian, but in every area of our life. And thirdly, increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowing God better is, just, is not just simply a means to living a good Christian life, as we said already, it is, it is a means to that, but it is part of what a good Christian life is. If we are living to please him, then we want to know more about him. We need to be a bit more obsessed with God. I want to know you better. I want to know how to please you. I want to know what you do like, what you don't like. I need to know you, Lord. And so it is that the pursuit of the knowledge of God is an outworking of a Christian life. So that's Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer has been for this Colossian church since he knew of them and he knew they were doing well, that they would grow in understanding so they can live a life that is appropriate for a Christian to live, pleasing to him, bearing good fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Then verse 11, he continues... May you be strengthened, and this is just a continuation of his prayer, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks. So let's break that down. Firstly here, again, this is just so reminiscent of Ephesians. In Ephesians, this whole uh, praying for strength was something that Paul said at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians, where he talks about, uh, he prays that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He prays that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. 
And then again in chapter 6, more famously, he prays, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, putting on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand. So remember, in the context of Ephesians, we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've got everything we need. So what Paul is praying for for the Colossians is not that they receive some new blessing. He's praying that they would increase in their knowledge, that their walk might mature, and that they would be strengthened. He wants them to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now this is crucial, crucial, crucial. Okay? The Christian life does not progress by us getting stronger, full stop. Sorry, period, you guys say. We say full stop in England. Forgive me. We, we, don't, we don't get strengthened and then, you know, oh, I'm stronger today, I'm doing better, therefore, I'm going to go and live a more godly life. Now, there's a subtle difference here, because Paul is saying that he prays that we will be strengthened, but, and here's the catch, he prays that we will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. His might brings glory to himself. And that's what he's going to do through us. Remember, when we believe we have the Holy Spirit, who himself is the source of God's power within us, and it is accessing his power, his might, his strength, that brings glory to God. It's not simply about us getting better. It's not about us getting stronger. It's about us getting stronger through his strength being revealed in us. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is like night and day. Some Christians who don't get this think that they've got to be better, they've got to be stronger, and it's coming from them. But in God's economy, it tends to work the other way around. God beats the strength out of us so that we only have his strength left to rely on. It's very different. Paul talks about this in more detail in 1 Corinthians where he talks about us being stronger when we're weaker. Christian strength isn't about us getting better. Christian strength is about us getting out of the way and God in his strength, in his might, working through us. You see, if we're going to be people who please God, we can strain all we want, but our sin nature just doesn't want us to please somebody else. Our sin nature just wants to be pleased. So it is by the Holy Spirit that we desire to please God. So becoming strong as a Christian isn't about grunting harder and trying harder and straining more and, you know, I'm going to do it this time. It, it's about yielding to God, recognizing that the strength to do God's will is within us and allowing him to work. How do we allow him to work? 
It comes back to being in his word and growing in knowledge. If, if, if we are constantly focused on our will and our desires and our life, then that's our focus. It's on us. But it's through growing in the knowledge of him. It's through being in his word that our focus shifts from us to him. You know, it's like Gideon. There's Gideon saying, we can't possibly beat that army. And God says, you're absolutely right, there's far too many of you. So he gets rid of a whole bunch of them. And Gideon says, well, but now we, had, we had almost zero chance, and now we pretty much are at zero. And, and God says, no, no, we're not quite ready yet. And he gets rid of a bit more of the army. That's how Christian strength works. Because you see, here's the problem. The problem was that Gideon was looking at the army that he had and said, huh? And he looks at the army over there and says, that's a bit more. I'm looking at army size here and it's just not adding up. That's like us when we look at ourselves. Our sin, our habit patterns how things have been in the past, in the previous weeks and months and years, how circumstances have been, how we cope, what's going on in our lives. We look at all of these things and we say, it just can't be done. What Gideon had to do was get his eyes off the size of his armies and get his eyes on the size of his God. And for us as Christians... We're not waiting for God to come down to the battle like Gideon was. For us as Christians, God, by his spirit, indwells us. But we're more interested in looking at all the things around us and all the things that would say can't be done than we are at looking in the Word at who God is. It's not about us. It's about him. And that's where our eyes should be. And so, he prays, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's where the power comes from. Four. So the four here tells us what the power and the strengthening God's power, God's strength is for. Is God going to strengthen us so that we can win a battle? Absolutely. What battle would that be? That would be for patience and endurance. For all endurance and patience. And notice again the repetition. All power, all endurance and patience. It's these words of completeness. So the result of us having strength is not that we can somehow do amazing things and everyone can say, oh, look how amazing they are. It's not that we can do things to make our lives more comfortable, but rather it's for endurance and patience. If God's strength means that everything's going to go well for you, you don't need patience and endurance. Endurance and patience is to people for whom things aren't going well. Some people, and again, this is one of those ones, it's like the pleasing him thing. It's one of those things where our thinking is topsy-turvy, and we've got we've to shift upside down on this one, okay? But some of us think 
that when God strengthens us, when we pray to God to intervene, that his intervention is solely to resolve things. God, come and remove this hurdle. Sort out this situation. Make this right. Bring this healing. Change that situation. God, come and make everything better. And God says, no, but I'm going to strengthen you so that you can withstand this. Huh? That's not what I was asking for. Kind of, kind of reminiscent of uh, when Jesus comes to Peter and says, hey, Peter, Satan's uh, asked if, I could, if he could sift you like wheat. And Peter's like, yeah? And you said... Presumably a big fat no. But no, he didn't. So I pray for you. He prayed ultimately for Peter's endurance. And Peter was sifted, and Peter did fall, and he betrayed Jesus, and he turned his back on him. And he had a very public, dramatic falling away from the faith. And Jesus went to him afterwards and he picked him up and he got him going again. Why? Because the answer to prayer is not to be taken out of the storm. The answer to prayer is strength for the storm. And so that's what he's praying for the Colossians. Now, again, we've got to be careful not to view this in isolation. Remember the reason this book was written. There's a heretic and I'm kind of reading around on this at the moment, and most people talk about heretics, plural, but there's actually not a lot of evidence to suggest that. Everything it talks about the false teacher in the singular in the book. And there seems to be somebody coming in who's about to give the Colossians a very, very hard time. And Paul's basically praying, patience, endurance. I want God to strengthen you for patience and endurance. Why? Because when false teachers come into a church and they try and stir things up and they try and turn people away, it's an absolute headache. It's a sifting. It exposes our weaknesses, our priorities, our failings, our concerns. So Paul says, I'm praying that you will be strengthened for pay, all endurance and patience, with joy. Now, for those of you who've suffered much, you'll know that sometimes, in the midst of the suffering, joy seems to be the furthest thing from your hearts and from your minds. But I think it's wrapped up quite nicely with verse 12 as it goes on. All endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You know, when we suffer, it's very, very hard to get our eyes off of the suffering. And it's not pleasurable, it's not pleasant, it's not nice. But there's always a reason for joy. Not joy in, in the suffering and in the moment of suffering, but joy in God who has saved us. And so often, 
I, I don't want to read into the text too much, but when he talks about the inheritance of the saints, there is, without a shadow of a doubt, a focus being placed on all that we have in Christ. All those blessings of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. How the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. How the Son redeemed us by his blood, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And how the Spirit saved us and, and, and came and indwelt us as a guarantee that God would finish his work and he one day glorify us. He cleanses us of our sin and he would make us new and we could be before him face to face for all eternity. That's our inheritance. But I wonder if part of our inheritance is the fellowship of sufferings that's so often spoken of. You know, we're following Christ and we're following in his stead. And in doing so, there in that time of patient endurance, there's joy because this walk, with all of its darkness and all of its twists and turns and all of its difficulties and all of its falling downs, in the midst of it all, it is the life that God has given to us. And that's something to be rejoiced in. Paul talks about how his trials, and boy, read Paul's trials. <laughs> I, I think Paul suffered more than almost anyone. Even Job, I think, falls second behind Paul when we understand the scope of it. And Paul said that his sufferings were momentary and light. Momentary and light? This is the guy who was stoned to death and they gave up because they thought he was dead. I bet it took a while to recover from that. Momentary and light, in comparison to the glory that is to come. You see, our lives now are eternal lives, but the impact of sin on our eternal lives is mercifully brief. Just a few decades. Very few people will have, will have more than 10 decades of Christian life. God gives us this brief, brief time where we wrestle with sin, while our bodies break and fail, while we mess up, where we fall down, where we betray God, where, where things aren't perfect, where we suffer, where we sin against others and others sin against us. But this is God preparing us for eternity when sin will become a distant memory. And so it is that in the midst of trials, there's a reason for joy. Joy because of our inheritance. And guys, part of our inheritance is the glory to come, and part of the glory that is to come is, comes to us because we're rewarded for our patient endurance in times of suffering. And so... Even in the darkest of times, there's joy and there's thanks because the Father has qualified us to share in this inheritance of the saints in light. And part of that inheritance, he now goes on to explain in verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now th this, is, this is utterly crucial, guys. Look, if, if you have two people sitting side by side and they are going through the same life experience and they are suffering in light of that experience, if one of them is saved and one of them isn't saved, their experiences are totally different because one is in the kingdom of darkness and that suffering is simply a preview of the suffering of eternity but on a very mild scale. And for the other one, they're in the kingdom of the God's Son. They're in the kingdom of Christ and their suffering is the preparation of riches for glory. That's totally different. And for those of us who have qualified for this inheritance, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we have gone out of the kingdom of darkness and we're in the kingdom of his beloved son. And on the day that the king comes and takes his throne, there will be those cast off into darkness for eternity, the kingdom that they were part of, and there will be those who will reign alongside him, who will come and be part of the kingdom of the Son. Life is that simply divided. And here in this world, it all gets so confusing. Everything looks like various shades of grey, doesn't it? You know, And this person suffering, and this person suffering, and this person reacts, and this person reacts. And it all looks so much the same. But on a spiritual level, it can be absolute opposite. And we must remember that. We must remember to view things through eternal eyes. And the deliverance from that kingdom of darkness into the Son's kingdom... And it's this Son, and this is how the deliverance has happened, this Son in whom, in the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, part of our inheritance is this transfer into the kingdom of the Son. And in the Son, we have redemption. Now, redemption here is defined as forgiveness of sins, but it's so much more than what that might appear to be to us. I think the word forgiveness is one of the most abused words in the English language today, particularly amongst Christians. So let me be clear about what forgiveness means, okay? Forgiveness does not mean letting somebody off an offence. We use it that way all the time. Stop doing it. Okay? Forgiveness does not mean letting somebody off something. If you want another word for that, say letting somebody off something. There you go. Did it for you. Forgiveness is the restoration of relationship. It's the making right of things. If somebody sins against you and they go away and you say, excuse me, you just sinned against me. And they say, no, I don't care. Or something maybe a little bit beyond the seven-year-old, but that kind of emphasis. Then for you to say, well, that's all right. I'm going to forgive you anyway. You have misused the word forgiveness. What you're communicating is great. 
Good on you. Godly stuff. Love it. What you mean is, I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. I'm not going to let this consume me. I'm not going to hold it against you. And I'm going to get on with my life as if it didn't happen. And they are good, noble, wonderful things. But they're not what forgiveness is. Otherwise, we're saying that we forgive better than God does. Because when somebody is separated from God by their sin, their only hope is his forgiveness. And if people, in response to being confronted with their sin against God, turn around and say, mm, I don't care, then God doesn't let them off. That's why the gospel message is so important. Because the only hope of forgiveness is your repentance. The only hope of forgiveness is you turning to God and say, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. And when we do that, he has a 100% success rate of forgiveness. He always forgives. Because he restores relationship with us. And that's what forgiveness is by definition. It's the restoration of our relationship with God. And so, when we talk about having forgiveness of sins, we're not simply saying that God's let us off our sins. We're not simply saying, well, you know what, when I was 15, I walked to the front of the church and, I, and there was an altar call and I asked Jesus to come into my heart, which, by the way, is not a biblical expression and it means nothing. I asked Jesus to come into my heart and uh, so I've gone off and I've just lived my life and I've done whatever I wanted. I've not really been much good and I've done this and I've done that, but what have you. But I know that God's going to let me off. Not a chance. Because forgiveness of sins is a restoration of relationship with God. It's a person not coming and getting a get-out-of-jail card to stick in their back pocket for the day they die. It's somebody coming and saying, I'm separate from you, God, because of my sin, and I need to have that gap bridged. I need to have this relationship restored. And so that's where redemption comes in. We are sinners who are bound to sin. Sin is our master. Someone saying, well, I'm not going to worship God. I'm a free man. No, you're not. You're like a dog. You know? If, you know, if I ask my dog to do certain things, he's sometimes obedient and sometimes not. But when I've got a treat in my hand, he really is obedient. He really wants to obey at that point. And we with sin apart from Christ are like dogs. We think we're doing what we want, but we're doing what we want because we're getting the treats that we want. Sin is our master. It controls our... We say, well, I'm doing this because I want to do this. But you want to do that because of sin. Sin controls you. And so redemption was a word that was used in the marketplace where somebody was a slave and that slave was purchased from one master to another master. And the idea of redemption is not God letting people off things. 
The idea of redemption is, is that a person apart from Christ is separated from God by their sin, but more so, sin controls them. And that Jesus has paid a price, the price of his life, the price of his blood, to the Father so that the penalty for sin is paid and ownership, ownership of that soul goes from darkness and sin into life and the sun. That's redemption and that's forgiveness and that's restoration of relationship with God. And folks, that's salvation and that's what a Christian looks like. And like Peter, we may stumble and we might fall. We may be sifted like wheat. But our hearts and our minds are on God. We go back to him because we are his. And so, our prayer should be for one another that we would be strengthened so that we have patient endurance to go through the things that God has for us in life and that we can do so with joy because our focus is on what God has done for us. And we give thanks because we have this great inheritance and the crown jewel of that inheritance is the fact that our sin has been dealt with. It no longer has power. We're empowered by God's Spirit and we can live a life that's worthy of the calling by which we've been called. That's worth giving thanks for. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, that this scripture is just so real and relevant and on point for us today. Father, I pray that we as a church would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pray that we would know you better. And I pray that knowing you better, we'd be able to walk better. That we would seek to please you with our lives. That there'd be good fruit in our lives and that we would come to know you better. And I pray that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit who indwells us, that his strength would work through us so that we would patiently endure with joy and thanksgiving all that this life brings. Because you have freed us from sin and you've put us into the kingdom of your Son. Father, may we live that life worthy of that calling, worthy of the redeemed, worthy of the forgiven. We ask this that you might be glorified and that you may have pleasure. Amen.